0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevich on Bloomberg Radio.
1: everyone
2: Carol Masser
3: And I'm Tim Stenevec. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week.
2: Tim, week 49, working from home still for many. We were mostly in the office, although snow kind of sent me home and you home a little bit as well. It's a week, though, where we saw stocks hitting records and then backing off, Bitcoin taking out one record after another. We did get some upbeat news on COVID cases, but that was a little bit overshadowed by reports about inequities of the vaccine rollout. That was just some of our backdrop this week as we talked with all of our guests.
3: Yeah, it was a busy week and it included the president of Impossible Foods, the company is cutting prices on quote-unquote meat, We, you know, put that in quotes because it's not actually meat, <laughs> right. by as much as 20%.
2: Also, we caught up with the former editor-in-chief of the Financial Times. He's got a new book out. It's called The Powerful and the Damn Private Diaries into Turbulent Times. He has seen so much, and he's written about it.
3: Plus, Mackenzie Scott, the former Mrs. Jeff Bezos, and how her big giveaway is transforming the family fortune.
2: She's really changing so much there. All of that to come, Tim, though, we begin with Dr. Elijah Day-Williams, Chief of Staff of Neurology over at Columbia University. He's an NIH-funded researcher, a leading health disparities expert, with research focused on community-based behavioral interventions.
3: He's also the founder, president, and board chair of Hip Hop Public Health. By the way, Bloomberg Philanthropies provided a grant to Hip Hop Public Health. We began by talking about what he's seeing in terms of cases and, and getting the vaccine out to the people who need it.
1: The good news. Is that um, you know we are seeing um, we are seeing you know our rates of COVID inpatients trickle down um, our admission rates uh, trickle down and, and we've been seeing that slowly but steadily uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a welcome relief uh, given uh, you know my experience on the front lines at the height of the pandemic when it took uh, New York City by surprise. Um, but on, on, on another front, um, I'm actually very, very concerned, um, about, um, about the vaccine coverage, um, situation. Um, as you, as you led with, uh, in, 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 this segment, there are striking disparities, um, again, afflicting those who, uh, suffer, suffer the most, um, communities of color, poor neighborhoods, uh, disenfranchised Americans. Uh, they're the ones... Uh, really, who have borne the brunt of the COVID death and morbidity rates, and and they're the ones now, um, really, um, really, uh, you know, really not being engaged sufficiently uh, enough, and and um, you know savely enough, um, to uh, you know in a way that they would enable uh, increased uptake of the vaccine. You know, we we have to earn back trust, uh, Kim and Carol. Uh, You know, trust was broken over hundreds and hundreds of years uh, of, you know, of quite frankly, systemic inequities and structural racism and um, and great mistrust with the medical community. And we're seeing those effects now. Uh, So we have to be more creative and we have to be more purposeful uh, uh, to earn back the trust of these communities so that we can get vaccination coverage rates up, because the bottom line is uh, we're all in this together. And, and, uh, we, we are all connected. And if one link in this chain, uh, is not strong, then, um, we won't be able to, you know, climb our way out of this pandemic.
2: Let's talk about your website and, and this organization that you've created, Hip Hop Public Health. It's very cool. I was watching videos last night about HIV and eating healthy, and you guys do it in a fun way. I mean, it's hip hop. It's a song. It's got lyrics, but it's also got really strong messages that I think, and I'm assuming, really stay with people. Tell me about this organization and the impact that you that you find that it's having and really reaching people.
1: Sure. Thank you. So, you know, hip hop Public Health was really born out of my frustration uh, with the traditional public health messages in the black community. I felt that the penetration of these public health communication campaigns uh, wasn't really sufficient. And a lot of the the work we did working directly with with community members confirmed uh, this really poor translation of of public health into the community. And and they really came up uh, with the suggestions for us to use a new model. Uh, And hip-hop really made a lot of sense, and it was really pushed and promoted by the youth that we were engaging around how best to do this. Uh, You know, as a neurologist, uh, Kim and Carol, I'm also um, uh, really uh, interested in music and its role in the Mm -hmm. brain. You know, a lot of people don't realize that that music actually occupies more real estate, more neural real estate in our brains than language itself. Wow. You know, music music augments learning it 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 it, it augments our memories and music it creates positive associations you know music in, increases our attention and music has such powerful neurological uh, 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 strengths and attributes that you know it's one of the reasons why if you think about how we learned our ABCs, we learned it through, through song if you think about movies that we watch right if you think about darth vader right you know he's imminent you know he's about to approach those emotions start rousing as soon as you hear that that music. If you think about Rocky, the the Rocky the Rocky series, you think about that music that's played and how it connects with your emotion and what it motivates you to go that extra mile when you're on the treadmill. You know music has such powerful, powerful features. And even as a neurologist, looking after stroke patients, we use a form of music called music intonation therapy to help patients speak again. We use it in our nursing homes to deal with agitation amongst dementia. So our our position at Hip Hop Public Health is that music has an incredibly transformative power it right. needs to be better better leveraged within public health.
3: That was Dr. Elijah Day-Williams, Chief of Staff of Neurology at Columbia University talking about so much in that interview for the entire interview. Check out the podcast.
2: And you loved and we both loved where he talked about the importance of music therapy. I've I've read about this and the impact that that can have on people with some severe injuries, especially neurological ones.
3: Yeah, that was just fascinating. I mean, this is a, a medical doctor, somebody who studies neurology, talking mm-hmm. about the importance of music uh, in recovery and association as well
2: a really important interview coming up from getting vaccines to minorities something dr williams also talked about to providing funding to black and brown entrepreneurs the founder and ceo of black girl ventures she's coming up next
3: you're listening to bloomberg business week this is bloomberg
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Well, this story that Bloomberg reported last year, Tim, i got to say it stayed with me. It's about how the U.S. population, it's 13% black, and yet just 4% of the VC industry is African-American. That data came out uh, on the year of 2018 from the National Venture Capital Association. That's compared with 3% two years earlier. It's not changing much, but one of the guests we caught up this week is trying to change it.
3: As is Nike, who who partnered with Black Girl Ventures to provide half a million dollars to fund Black and brown women identifying founders of companies. Here with more on that and the work that Black Girl Ventures has been doing since it was founded back in 2016 is Shelly Bell, founder and CEO at Black Girl Ventures.
4: So with Black Girl Ventures, we work to create access to capital, capacity, and community in order to help Black and brown founders sustain and grow their businesses. One of the ways we do this is we have a unique way of providing capital through our pitch competition. And that competition is like Kickstarter and Shark Tank put together. So women pitch their businesses, and it is crowdfunded. And so the audience actually votes with their dollars for the pitch that they favor most, and then we grant that capital to those uh, winners. We've also stretched across the city. So we're, we're in the, I'm across the country. Wait, wait,
2: wait, wait, so in, wait, wait. So explain this. So, so okay, you. Okay, okay. see, so, I love it. Wait, I want you to break it down for me. So you're telling me that okay. entrepreneurs, they pitch to an audience and then the audience actually votes with
4: money? Yes. And Black Girl Ventures, we, we created a crowdfunded pitch competition. So, you know, while, you know, the stats as you just mentioned 4% of the VC industry being uh, black and, you know, less than 1% of black women or black, black women receiving access to VC capital, you know, I'm just, I was thinking to myself, well, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And so I created this unique way of engaging people, democratizing access to capital. It is, it, while we wait for everyone to become more equitable, we still, as underrepresented groups, have to stay in business. And so my thought was, what could we do? And this is what we could do. We can activate people to actually engage in peop- with people to vote with their dollars to provide access to capital.
2: Well, and tell me about this, because you've been doing it for a few years now. What's been the payoff of this?
4: Yeah, I mean, when we're doing just purely, you know, access to capital, you can, from, in terms of, like, without any sponsors in the beginning, we were still able to provide anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars. I mean, now, with, with our our efforts becoming more visible at, at Black Girl Ventures, and having awesome partners like Nike, Visa, Warby Parker, Equilibria, Cool House, like just amazing partners that we're able to work with now, Rare Beauty Brands. We're actually able to get our, um, our community more capital through the partnerships and connecting them to bigger partners. So, for example, with the Rare Beauty Brands competition, it was a clean beauty competition, the first one in the country, and we partnered up with Ulta Beauty. And so the winner of that competition, not only did they receive $10,000 plus their crowdfunded capital, they got an opportunity to sell their products on UltaBeauty.com.
2: Wow. So it is really a combination of Shark Tank, American Idol, like all these things in terms (laughs) of doing it. But, you know, it, it speaks to, though, what is a very significant problem in that there's not equal access to capital or fundraising, you know, rounds for all individuals.
4: No, there's not. And I mean... There's not equal access. There's not equity when, in, when it comes to loans. There's not equity when it comes to uh, capital. So at Black Girl Ventures, we try to combat that with this crowdfunding competition. On top of that, we are we also have a fellowship. So with this Nike partnership, we will be launching in Chicago. It is a nine-month fellowship, not only focused on business owners, but focused on business, them becoming business leaders. We need more voices at the table, and that's what I've learned through our efforts at Black Girl Ventures. Is that having more voices at the table, voices in the community that are amplified, visibility? We feel like people will be able to engage in supporting these groups. Right. It's um, a, so it's been an amazing journey.
2: Yeah, it's creating role models for people to follow, but it's also creating a network.
4: Absolutely. So, you know, each, one's each one's a fun one teach one
2: to fund one. It's a great way of saying it. Shelly, you guys have funded, um, I think, roughly 130 women. And I'm just curious, talk to me a little bit more about what happens to these women where by providing them with a little bit of funding, what happens to them as an entrepreneur? What happens to them as a business you know, owner? What happens to them maybe as someone who's able to kind of pass it along and mon- mon- uh, mentor somebody else?
4: Yeah, great question. We... At Black Girl Ventures, we also provide them with more resources after they pitch. And so they get an opportunity to go through an accelerator program, to be a part of a larger community. They get an opportunity to get access to Google Cloud credits, Amazon credits. Um, Also, we have different tech partners, Salesforce, HubSpot. Uh, We also connect them to people. But one of the things that I would say that they can do with the capital, especially in today's society where everything is um, so connected to tech, is they can market. You know, they could put the money into ads. Um, they can actually hire or keep on a freelancer for another month or two. Um, and those kinds of things extend their capacity and you know, and also so capital capacity and community of Black girl managers.
2: well, and I'm guessing that there is also a sensitivity and maybe a um a deliberate you know being deliberate in terms of, Their supply chains, because one of the conversations, Shelley, that we've had, uh, certainly here at Bloomberg, and especially in light of what happened to George Floyd and just trying to understand the racism within, you know, the society at large is the importance of companies, big companies that when they're thinking about their supply chain, to make sure it's diverse, like, you know, that money talks, essentially, and that's how we're going to move the needle here.
4: 100%. I mean, access to capital can look like a few things. At Blackrock Ventures, we believe that access to capital could be a larger customer, right? And so, when you talk about diversifying the, the supply chain, that's what we're looking at: people being able to get into supplier diversity efforts that allow them to get access to a larger customer. And this is why the government, the U.S. government's efforts around um, supplier and around like contracts is so important because them being able to get access to the government, even as a customer, is super important to diversifying. And being able to level up your company. I mean, prior to me operating Black Girl Ventures, I owned a print shop. Mm-hmm. And I was able to level up by doing uh, swag and merch orders for Amazon and Google. And I mean, you know, considering that journey, took that, invested in what is Black Girl Ventures today to grow this as a nonprofit, uh, really focused on creating more access to more women. So if you look at that thread, right, now me learning how to do that through like working with Google and working with Amazon. And also getting a bigger customer through Google and Amazon, right? And then moving into creating this, which now has created access to capital for 130 and counting women across the country.
2: And that was Shelly Bell, founder and CEO of Black Girl Ventures. And listen, one of the things we got into the conversation, Tim, is just that whole idea of that a lot of minorities don't have the same access to capital that white investors and entrepreneurs do. And so uh, she's really trying to change that and move the needle. All right, still ahead, what's troubling workers. A survey ranks their concerns.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. This
0: is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: So Tim, the American worker, you know, you've talked about it a lot. I've talked about it a lot. It's something that Bloomberg has really kept close tabs on. And long before the pandemic, we know that U.S. workers' productivity and their median pay, which once rose in tandem, went through an acrimonious divorce. Compensation, especially in some of the country's fastest-growing industries, well, it stagnated. While the costs of housing, health care, and education, Tim, we know this decidedly have not.
3: And one thing that we talk a lot about is, is workers' goals of financial security. Here with insight on that is Rob Thalson, Vice Chair at Prudential Financial and a member of Prudential's Board of Directors, with the company's latest survey of the workforce.
5: Yeah, so this is actually the eleventh in our series that both predates and then subsequent to the uh, to the pandemic. Um, some interesting things coming out of this most recent survey. Uh, what I found uh, most interesting, not necessarily surprising to to me at least, but interesting is um, how you know you think about how stress reveals cracks in foundations. Um, this stress, the economic stress and the pandemic stress that we've been going through is, is actually, uh, you know, I think revealed uh, conditions that existed well before the pandemic in terms of the lack of financial resiliency that exists with, you know, with, with amongst American workers. And in the, in the survey, over half of the individuals surveyed indicated that they recognized that since the pandemic, they actually were not well prepared going into the pandemic From the standpoint of sort of their their own financial um, sort of well-being uh and i think that was quite interesting so when we talk about the pandemic it's made it much worse so now seven in ten are not well prepared uh but but fully half those were were not in great shape Heading into the pandemic, which I think speaks to some of the foundational and fundamental things that need to be addressed.
3: Yeah. So so we Rob, we talk a lot about this idea of the K-shaped recovery that so many Americans uh, are out of work right now and they're having a really tough time getting back to work. At the same time, we're seeing the stock market flirt with record highs and people who are at the top end of the income spectrum are doing pretty well. And I, I'm wondering what you saw in your research that actually can, confirms and, and, and confirms to, to conforms to that.
5: Well, uh, what it showed is that, you know, there's a, there's a high level of anxiety amongst American workers. And, you know, if you sort of think about it, it's the broad-based American workers. So you're talking about middle America uh, in this kind of a survey. So, you know, the people who may have some level of savings uh, but obviously insufficient based on what the survey has said, and so the, the benefit that they've received by virtue of the uplift in, in financial markets has been dwarfed by the insecurity they're feeling because of uh, around job security and benefit security and, and the reality of um, whatever they were making and saving before the pandemic hasn't been enough. Um, what I thought was, it was interesting, Tim, is um, in the survey it showed that, you know, one in four had actually exhausted um, uh, or substantially depleted their emergency savings, and now uh, one in five were behind on their bills, and two thirds said they couldn't, they could not finance a or pay for any kind of an emergency repair or you know need for cash that might come up. So I, I think there's you know there's very much this dichotomy of. of uh, Individuals who are, who are who have not participated in the financial markets are are actually quite vulnerable.
6: Hey, I do
2: wonder, Rob, too. Were there any differences in terms of ages, millennials versus older workers?
5: Yeah, interesting question, Carol. We did look at that, particularly in this survey. We looked at millennials, uh, and it was actually worse, uh, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. When I thought about it, perhaps not surprising. I mean, let's remember, millennials now are the biggest component of the workforce, so whatever we're seeing in the data it's gonna reflect how millennials are, are, are also experiencing the, uh, the current uh, environment. But also when you think about where they, the millennial is um, from the standpoint of sort of a life cycle, you know, they're heading into household formation, um, you know, buying homes, getting mortgages, um raising children uh and so there are points in their career when actually um they're at probably the most stressful points in their career in terms of their need for resiliency yet are faced with an environment where uh it's you know not not particularly available and i think it has them more stressed over the current circumstances than the general population.
2: And forgive me for springing this on you too, but I am curious in terms of pulling the research and pulling it together, um, any differences when they dig a little bit deeper into um, backgrounds and demographics, blacks versus whites, like any differences there?
5: Yeah, our, our survey didn't, we haven't parsed the data out from the survey that way, okay. but you know, I think it's fair to say, um, Carol, that you know when you look at both the first order effects of the pandemic, Uh, from a health standpoint, and then the second-order effects from an economic standpoint, uh, it's been a very unequal experience in our society. Uh, And, you know, from a socioeconomic demographic standpoint, so from both a racial standpoint and, frankly, from a gender standpoint, too, one of the things we do see is um, in other surveys that we've done related to this is that, you know, women are experiencing this from a stress standpoint Uh, more extremely than men are as a result of, you know, what the pandemic has done to the personal demands in the household and, you know, all the benefits of remote work, and we've talked about this before, Mm Come with some of the burdens of being at home, and and that has to do with you know the child care and home and homeschooling and and uh, and you know associated activities.
2: So it's interesting to hear you know what Rob had to say, Tim, because you know sometimes workers are concerned about just keeping their job. Sometimes they're worried about getting you know pay increases. This time it really was largely about financial security. So good to get uh, some thoughts on that. And that of course was Rob Falzon. he's vice chair at Prudential Financial. He's also a member of Prudential's board of directors.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, someone who's had a front seat to so much, the former editor-in-chief of the Financial Times, all about the biggest business stories of his career.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
7: He spent
3: 15 years as the editor of the Financial Times, a front-row seat to the big business, economic, and political stories of our times and the power players behind them all.
2: I love talking to people like this, Tim. And his observations, his access, it's all detailed in a new book. It's a diary, if you will, of what he saw. The book is entitled The Powerful and the Damned, Private Diaries in Turbulent Times. And the author, Lionel Barber, former FT editor-in-chief. Check it out.
8: Well, great to be with you, Carol. I I wanted to have a book about power Uh, people in power, how they made decisions, what were they like up close and personal, like uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Riyadh or Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin, or uh, the uh, President Trump and Obama, sort of snapshots of the personalities, and on Wall Street, obviously, some of the big bankers who were in the middle of the global financial crisis. And I had a privileged seat, as you say, as editor of the Financial Times, so up close and personal in diary form.
2: In terms of, we got about thirty seconds. Then we'll come back. Everybody who has power, not the same though. In terms of how they use it or how they, I don't know, how they are face to face.
8: Well, I I think that the big change that happened um, in the, under my editorship was obviously the digital revolution,
1: mm-hmm.
8: and that really um, changed the power balance between readers and and producers of news. Uh, the news industry fragmented. There were New ways of reaching readers, you saw that with Twitter and politicians, and, and also the rise of China. That was the other huge phenomenon. Uh, there was a change, frankly, in the economic balance of power right. between East and West.
2: So one thing I want to ask you, Lionel, especially on a day where we were kind of glued to the hearings in Washington, the GameStop meme, stock trading, uh, the Reddit rise, um, is it a story that you missed reporting on?
8: Oh, yeah. I mean... This was one of the best market stories. Um, it was better than the taper trend tantrum. Mm-hmm. Maybe not quite as dramatic as when we were watching the world's financial system almost melt down in 2008. But it, it had everything, didn't it? The, the small-time trader, the hedge funds making uh, millions, uh, and, and one or two companies that you and I thought were not much better than penny stocks suddenly going through the roof. Right. Yeah, I'd love to have been in the newsroom.
2: Who's the powerful and who's the damned in that story?
8: Uh, in in the uh, GameStop. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were one or two people who are going to got caught short, um, who are definitely going to be damned. But I think there's some questions about the integrity of the trading platform. Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, um, the powerful. Uh, maybe at least in the short term, the the the, uh, the small time retail investor clubbing together was a bit more powerful than we ever imagined
2: so I want to go through I have a I could talk to you for hours um, the tech boom what comes to mind who was the the power player that just epitomizes that 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 time
8: well, you you have to say that it's the big four isn't it um, mm-hmm. I think Jeff Bezo's amazing transformation of amazon Facebook some questions about um, their model the way they, they they the contribution to the sort of Civic discourse in role in elections, uh, being a, their platforms being abused. Google, massive amount of influence over the, the news business. I mean, for a, for the FT, it was critical because we built a subscription model. Uh, I see a few f- uh, have followed that over across the pond.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
8: for the you know having a, a reasonable relationship and uh, making the tech giants understand, and that included Apple that. You know, we couldn't just hand over our data on our customers. We needed to sort of establish our brand and not be discriminated against. And that, that was a big story. But the powerful were certainly, and still are, the big tech four in America. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And by the way, in China.
2: Yeah. Well, well, absolutely. We talked earlier about Facebook and and what's going on in Australia right now. Um, I do wonder, you know, what is the survival of mainstream media when you've got social media and it's where increasingly everyone goes for their news?
8: Well, true, Carol. And uh, in the period I was editor, there's no question that the media landscape fragmented in a Mm -hmm. dramatic way and social media became terribly important. But as long as you're not caught in the muddled middle and you've got a strong brand, and I would consider Bloomberg, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Financial Times. Mm-hmm. We were known when I was in Washington 25 years ago as the Financial Times of London, no more. It was the FT, pink brand. If you've got a strong brand and a good business model, which is a subscription business, you know, you can thrive. And we, the FT did get more than a million paying readers. We doubled our audience and readership in the 15 years I was editor.
2: It was a must read for all of us uh, when it came to anything going on in, in the world of business and, and beyond and, and the markets. Let me let me go through a couple of other big stories. Um, the global financial crisis. Who's one power player that you were in their office or on the phone with that just when you think of that time, that's who you think of?
8: I think of Jamie Dimon because mm. he, he was tactically very, so astute. And look, they got bigger and more and, and they managed their risk very well. I, I think of Steve Schwarzman, uh, who epitomizes the role of pr- and rise of private equity. Uh, his market timing going public was impeccable, and they manage risk well. And also, I think of Larry Fink, uh, that quiet but immense power in asset management. Those are the three. Maybe Goldman, um, Lloyd Blankfein, he was always great fun to talk to, very astute.
2: Lionel, if you put out a phone call to anybody, did everyone always call you back?
8: Uh, well they called me back maybe not in 5 minutes but <laughs> at the end of a half an hour yeah people return my calls
2: was there any call that you were ever nervous talking to someone because it was a delicate story or i don't know i'm curious
8: oh uh, you always worry a bit that um when when that heavy breathing comes on the line and you <laughs> think well you know we you don't know what the have you messed up or something you're a bit wary but then you've got to be able to bounce you know uh, strike back, politely of course, but no, I, I wasn't really nervous. Um, obviously in our country we've got libel risk, There mm-hmm. were things like that, and look, frankly, there were occasions when things got a bit heated on the phone, but this is a family uh, broadcast, so I don't <laughs> want to go into it. <laughs> well, there's great details in the book.
2: The Rise of China, it's something we tease before the break. Um, I feel like this is a story We've certainly been covering it, but I think we don't realize how big China has become and how significant they've become in our global economy. It's it's above and beyond the numbers.
8: You're so right. I mean, I, I think this was really belongs to the one or two biggest stories of my time as editor. And the difference, of course, was the change in power when Xi Jinping came to power and and decided to go beyond the natural two terms and... You know that old phrase that uh, Deng Xiaoping said that China should uh, bide its time and hide its power? Mm -hmm. Well, under Xi Jinping, they're they're not biding their time, and they're certainly not hiding their power. And I think the other thing that I noticed, and I remember right-going spending three days in Washington just to get a sense of what the establishment, political establishment across Democrats and Republicans, and the intelligence and security establishment felt, and it was clear to me at that point, in 2017, 18, that the whole atmosphere had changed, and this was going to be a, an age of confrontation across the board, and it is. You're you're back to sort of almost 19th century great power rivalry.
2: Favorite person that you had a conversation with in your in your tenure, and just got about a minute left.
8: Well, I I do remember sitting in uh, opposite Vladimir Putin in the mm. Kremlin, and there's, there's a picture of that
2: lies. in the book. Yeah.
8: Well, he, he's a very icy character, and he's a little scary character. And uh, interviewing him, with, he's the master of destabilization. He's always trying to put you off balance. So that was memorable. And, uh, you know, actually, the, the, probably the most memorable was sitting for three and a half hours. And I have to say my backside was getting a bit sore in Rwanda, talking to uh, Paul Kagame, who's mm. transformed that country. That was memorable.
2: And forgive me, I said a picture in the book, but it was actually a picture in in some of the coverage of your book that I came across with you sitting down with Vladimir Putin. Um, I hope you will come back. I'd love to talk more about what's in the book and your observations of of some of the big stories that continue in our time. Uh, Thank you so much, and good luck with it. Lionel Barber. Thank you, Carol.
3: That's Lionel Barber, the former editor-in-chief of the Financial Times.
2: A lot has happened to him in the last decade or so.
3: Yeah, it it really has. And, you know, having a front row seat to all of these stories, it really reminds me of why I wanted to become a journalist. I mean, we get to witness history in the making. It's just, it's so cool.
2: Yeah, I agree. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio.
3: I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. More ahead in our next hour, including a conversation with the president of Impossible Foods and the food innovation to come.
2: A lot is changing. And the founder of Atom & Matter on radically sustainable jewelry.
3: Plus, the individual transforming the fortune created by billionaire and founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. We're talking about his ex wife, Mackenzie Scott.
2: Love this story. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Carol Masser.
0: And I'm Tim Stenovec.
2: Planning ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the president of Impossible Foods on price cuts and food innovation, there's more to come.
3: Plus, we're going to hear about an influencer who turned her passion into a business.
2: And booze delivery. Uh. (laughs) We were all drinking a lot during the pandemic. Uh, And getting it delivered to our home, it's definitely one of the booms during the health crisis.
3: First, though, in the magazine this week, a story that was among the most read on the Bloomberg when it crossed about the individual transforming the fortune created by billionaire and founder of Amazon Jeff Bezos.
2: We're of course talking about his ex-wife Mackenzie Scott. We got more from Bloomberg News Wealth Team reporter Sophie Alexander and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber.
7: What we've seen since their divorce and really um, uh, most recently um, largely because of Mackenzie has been um, this real uh, uh, change and you know the six billion figure that uh, Sophie uh, and and Ben write about um, that's attributed to her. We think is the largest single, uh, single uh, amount that anyone's ever given to uh, philanthropies in a, in a in a calendar year, um, and, and so Sophie, like, can you walk us through, you know, the the significance of what that means for the Amazon fortune going forward?
9: The six billion dollars is just such an, an immense figure, and when we're talking about philanthropy historically. You know, one of the main uh, criticisms of billionaire philanthropists, of, or one of their reasons, rather, of not giving away enough money faster is that, you know, it takes time to be thoughtful, and it takes time to give away this huge amounts of money, you know, billions of dollars. Uh, but Mackenzie's sort of disproving that. And what this could mean for the future is, you know, Mackenzie's only just getting started. She's finally giving pledge. She's pledged to give away the majority of her fortune, um, which at this point is nearing $60 billion. And so um, that's just a huge amount of money that could be uh, given away. And then when we're talking about Jeff, who recently stepped down or announced that he would be stepping down from Amazon as CEO, um, that's sort of a sign that he's probably going to focus more on his giving and that we could be seeing more from him in the philanthrop- philanthropic space coming forward.
2: And to be fair, I mean, he did give away money before, right? But it's not as quickly as his former wife has.
9: Definitely. Um, I think that the to be fair to Jeff, um, when we talk about Bill Gates, you know, one of the most uh, impressive philanthropists in history, he didn't start giving away, very much until he stepped down from Microsoft. Um, and so Jeff has been giving money, but you know, when you put it in the context of how much wealth he really has, it's, it's a very small amount. We're talking about uh, single-digit millions, um, tens of millions sometimes, and more recently, sure, hundreds of millions of dollars But where he's really uh, had the biggest figures are in his commitment. You know, he's made the two billion dollar commitment for uh, the day one fund and then the 10 billion dollar commitment for the Earth Fund. So those are huge numbers, but we're not actually seeing that money deployed yet.
3: Bill Gates didn't start giving significantly until he left Microsoft as CEO, which which I thought was a a really important point and not something that I had considered. I wonder if that's what we're going to start seeing from Jeff Bezos now that he has stepped down or he said he would step down and that will happen later this year and, and hand off the reins to to somebody else at Amazon are we going to start seeing Jeff Bezos give away more money
9: that is sort of the big question you know in his letter announcing that he would be stepping down he mentioned the day one fund and he mentioned the earth fund as two of the things that he plans to focus on more so you know it's been a, a few years now since he made those announcements that he would start the day one fund and he announced the earth fund last year but really has only given about a billion dollars of the 12 billion dollars that he's committed to giving and he's set no timeline for himself so you know he's not really going to be held to anything um... But we could see more from him coming soon.
7: Well, I think you know that's, it's an interesting point here because the the Chronicle of Philanthropy came out with some big numbers from from uh, Bezos and and Scott and others, and and one of the things that is interesting there is that you know Bezos' name was actually at the top of that list. Because of what he's pledged, but not actually what he's given, and that I think is the one of the things that is really important to keep in mind, and what what Sophie and Ben did a great job of underscoring in this is like one thing to pledge, and it's another thing to actually do. And what she, you know, really showed here is is uh, that you can do something big and dramatic, and do it actually fast. And that that I think is the thing that um, everyone in the philanthropy world has looked at her and said wow this is something so my last question for you is how competitive does it get when your ex-wife is giving away <laughs> six billion like do you is that something you have to kind of like does it sort of kindle a fire in your belly to be like I, I gotta come
10: through um, did you quick. really do that joel, yeah. joel. I, you know wow. it just it happens. it happens
3: it's like you can hear an echo in here <laughs>
10: uh-huh. <laughs> that's
3: a real laugh from joel I like all it. right
2: Thank you joel. guys just be quiet go ahead sophie answer <laughs>
10: I, I
9: was just going to say, I mean, it's impossible to say what the relationship is now and how her giving impacts his giving. You know, she's signed the giving pledge. She hasn't, and he's been sort of knocked for that. Um, but, and it's also impossible to say what their philanthropic uh, giving, you know, who did what while they were together was. I talked to an expert about that. She said it's really hard to say. You know, it varies from couple to couple. Um, so we just don't really know enough about their individual personalities to be able to say much more on that, but you've got to think that, you know, when people are talking about the Amazon fortune and seeing these things that, you know, you might feel a certain responsibility to sort of step it up.
2: It's got to be a prime topic that comes up oh, between the two come of them. On. Oh. <laughs> We're a great
3: team. I'm just going to say it. That's Bloomberg News Wealth Team reporter, Sophie Alexander, and Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, the social media influencer who is now using her influence to help others and creating a sustainable jewelry company along the way.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: So, Tim, remember last week we highlighted an interview we did with journalist Nick Milton. It was about his new HBO Max documentary, and that was all about creating Instagram and social media influencers.
3: Yeah, I loved being able to interview Nick. Uh, mm-hmm. The documentary left me sort of feeling like, oh, this <laughs> is the world we live in. We have to accept it. It was a little scary.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and this week, we actually caught up with one of those influencers uh, who has nearly 5 million Twitter followers. She's got 4.6 million followers on Instagram. She is someone, though, Tim, who has stepped away from social media, at least for a while. She was named the most influential person on the internet by time two years in a row and Forbes 30 Under 30.
3: Her latest venture, creating a direct consumer jewelry company that uses recycled sterling silver, sustainably and ethically crafted in Thailand, which went online last November. Bethany Moda, founder of Adam and Matter.
6: So, my company we launched in November, it's called Adam and Matter. So it is a jewelry brand, and I had done some stuff in, like, the fashion space before when I had a clothing line with Aeropistale. That was a few
10: years ago, mm-hmm.
6: um, and we did do a little jewelry in that collection, but I always really wanted to offer something in the jewelry space that, you know, maybe was a little bit more expensive than what I've done in the past, but for good reason, and that's why designing all of these I was also able to work with former Tiffany and co-designer Yunjo Lee and she helped kind of guide me in making you know sustainable products that are going to last a really long time so you don't buy it because it's trendy and then you throw it away a few months later I really wanted to make products that can actually become a part of your life because I know for me some of my favorite jewelry pieces even growing up it's like I would keep them for years and they are kind of like I compare it to tattoos a lot because I feel like <laughs> when you really love a specific piece of jewelry, whether someone special gave it to you or it just means something, um, you know, it has a personality in it and it kind of defines you in a way whenever you put it on and acts as like a reminder for something significant. So that was kind of my overall with this collection well it's interesting I do
2: think this year too we've thought a lot a lot more about our impact on the environment right we saw as the world shut down skies were clear Uh, you could see mountain ranges Um, it was pretty remarkable but I do think about we've become such a society where we wear something a couple times throw it away we like you know so disposable so it's interesting to hear you say about that sustainability though I feel like the metrics around it can be kind of fuzzy what does sustainability mean to your company
6: So, I mean, we're a new brand, and we're still learning, and we're always open to new ways that we can improve. Um, Some of the ways, I mean, we use recycled and hypoallergenic lead-free materials, so like recycled metals and all of that for our products. And then also, for me, it came down to even just the packaging that it comes in was really important for me, because I know sometimes you'll get jewelry, and it comes on like a little card or something that you just toss in the trash. So I wanted to make sure that each box that our pieces come in is sturdy enough and, again, using, like, all sustainable materials and making sure it's something that you don't want to just toss, but you could actually use as a jewelry box for the item that you bought. So Mm -hmm. all of our packaging is meant... It's also kind of like a collectible sort of thing. Like, I have all of my boxes for all the jewelry, and it looks really pretty on your vanity. So that was my thing, is, like, let's make this look really nice and make it... Sturdy and reliable right. so that people get this, they realize, you know, oh, I can keep this and I can store all of my jewelry or even other things inside of it.
2: From what I understand, they're also part of, is it, is it called the Responsible
6: Jewelry Council? Yeah, because, you know, when it comes to manufacturers, we obviously want to make sure that we trust the manufacturer that we're right. working with and that, you know, it's good working conditions and that, you know, we are supplying the best product for our customers but also that behind the scenes everything else is also very you know ethical and and great behind the scenes so that is basically what that means is that we've done our research in making sure that the manufacturer that we're in business with is up to our standards um, and vice versa
2: and and it also is a give back program right because everything that is sold there's a donation made to an organization dedicated to female empowerment. Talk to us a little bit about that because that's part of it, right?
6: Yeah, so I knew that was something that I definitely wanted to incorporate as well. Um, Giving back is something that I feel like if we all, any of us ever have the opportunity to do so, I think it's incredible to do so. And so I wanted to incorporate that into the brand. So we are working with Step Up and Prasam. So both of these organizations, they're just very dedicated to help propel girls from under-resourced communities to fulfill their full potential, Um, whether it's like different programs, educational programs, and just helping them reach their dreams and their overall goals. Um, So I'm really happy to be in partnership with them and um, finding different ways to work together. Yeah, it's really great. I love it when
2: we find an entrepreneur who then ultimately, who's done well, figured it out, and then is helping others to do the same. And that's really what you're doing.
6: Yeah, and that's definitely, it kind of is a full circle and goes back to what the brand stands for, is we want this to be, you know, an empowering brand, and we want it to inspire other people, and, you know, at the end of the day, this is something that I genuinely never thought would be possible for me, especially, like, as a 13-year-old girl, when I started YouTube, like, so many years ago, I never would have thought that I'd be able to launch a brand like this, um... So it also itself is a representation, especially now in the social media world, it's so accessible for anybody to have that dream and for it to actually be accomplished. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of like goes back to the whole deeper meaning of empowering everybody
4: to go
6: after what they want because it is possible.
2: You were, and you are an influencer. You have a lot of followers uh, on social media, but you stepped away from it. Tell me why. I mean, and, and I am curious, because you're back on social media. How do you how do you see social media? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it not so black and white?
6: Um, I think social media can be as good or as bad as you want it to be. Um, and that's something that I had to learn and is also what contributed to me deciding to take a break. I took a break um, kind of when social media burnout wasn't being talked about as much, so I thought I was the only one experiencing it. Um, I think at the end of the day, to be an influencer, you have to have somewhat of an ego, Mm -hmm. and I think that my ego, at a point, got a little out of control in ways that I felt like I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing anymore. I think when you start out, especially for me, you know, so many years ago, when social media wasn't looked at as a career, I did it fully out of passion, and so... Um, Somewhere along the lines, when it becomes a career, it can get a little confusing of like, wait, am I doing this because I love it or is it just for money? And like, that's why I had to kind of step away to find the balance again of my passion for it um, so that I could feel like, okay, I am giving my most authentic self to my audience. And I don't feel like I'm being inauthentic for the sake of my career. That's
3: Adam and Matter founder Bethany Moda. To come on Bloomberg Business Week,
2: the boom and booze delivery in the world of COVID.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: So, Tim, I tweeted out this story when it came out. It's about how COVID brought booze to your door, my door, everyone's doors, uh, making the online liquor sales and delivery business worth billions of dollars.
3: Yeah, it's grown so much in the United States over the last year. The story and the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine now on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. Bloomberg News consumer reporter Tiffany Carey.
10: Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of the alcohol companies, they've obviously had a hard time with all the bars and restaurants being closed, but, that you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So here, you know, a lot of them are investing in e-commerce more, and and we're seeing these platforms that that can deliver booze really take off.
3: Okay, but what about the regulatory framework here? Because your story goes into some history that I really didn't know about the delivery of alcohol that goes all the way back to prohibition.
10: Yeah, it's crazy, right? They had to break up the bootleggers. So they created this sort of three-tier system where they weren't going to have anyone own all three parts of of the you know distributor retailer um, wholesaler chain and so there's this legacy where no one could own all these three parts so it's really hard to do the sort of direct to commerce direct to consumer that we've seen in in all these other industries it's really held uh, online sales of alcohol back
2: so Let's talk about, because we saw, you know, Drizzly and Uber, like, so how does this maybe change the dynamics of the players in the industry and how much this business maybe grows going forward?
10: Well, I mean, these are big names, right? Everyone knows Uber if they don't know Drizzly. So I think it's helped bring a lot of attention to this, which is important because I think a lot of people haven't even realized that they can order alcohol online. I think there was a statistic, you know, that only 20% of people before the pandemic even realized they could order beer online. So now, you know, consumers are more aware. I think it's going to take off because really, who wants to go all the way to the store just to get a six pack or a bottle of wine or or liquor?
3: So there's, a, there's a, a host of companies apart from Drizzly, Speakeasy, Thirsty, Bev Shop, Cask and Barrel Club, and, and Passion Spirits. And, and some of them are similar to one another. Some have minor differences. Uh, they've done pretty well throughout the pandemic. But what does it look like on the other side of the pandemic when people are saying, OK, wait a second, I'm OK with actually you know, going to restaurants and, and going to bars again. Um, I'm not drinking at home as much.
10: Well, I think people have always you know, had alcohol at home, I think people will continue to buy it online. And there's actually some interesting talk about, you know, what will happen to liquor stores here if people don't need to go to the liquor store to buy the alcohol, if they can buy it online, like they buy their groceries, do these become like tasting rooms or something very different?
3: But do some of these services, do they get fulfilled by your neighborhood liquor store?
10: They do. I mean, that's what So interesting about this, because of this legacy of the three-tier model that's been around since prohibition, they can't deliver it themselves, so they end up going through the liquor stores. So there's definitely an important role here for the small retailers.
3: It's so interesting. We talked yesterday about ghost kitchens, Carol. Yeah. And the idea of of the way that, that restaurants have changed and, and not having actual, you know, people sit in them right now because of the pandemic. I wonder So ghost if,
2: liquor stores? That's what I'm wondering. Like Is listen, that what I, we're that, gonna see? I've like or, from people are like, Oh wait, you're in New Jersey, I can't you can, so I've yeah. gotta go to your local liquor store to have them actually deliver to you. I mean, that's a really good question. What do you think? Is that what happens? Well a lot
10: of these delivery services will not cross state lines just because of the law. They do have to comply with the three-tier system, even though they're sort of disrupting it in a way.
2: Well, that's what I thought was interesting, that even though... It sounds like it should be like direct to consumer. <laughs> it's not Tiffany, right? Like I wrote in my notes after reading your story, I'm like, there's still layers <laughs> to get that bottle yeah. of booze. You hit the button, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, on the website, but that doesn't mean automatically that's who's
10: gonna give you
2: <laughs> the booze.
10: That's right. There's a super complicated back end and a lot of these companies, you know, they don't consider themselves delivery companies or even logistics companies. They talk about themselves as software companies, they've really used technology just to sort of solve this problem. So you go to a website, you think you're buying it from the brand, you have this sort of fluid experience as a consumer, but on the back end, the software is taking you you know, to a different site and, and having you buy it somewhere else and have it fulfilled by the liquor store really.
3: Okay. So how does Thirsty come into this? It's a little different than Drizzly because Thirsty works with, with major brands and, and those owned by Constellation brands, and it's sort of, as you described, this, this Shopify for booze.
10: Yeah, it's a little different because with Drizzly, it's like the experience of going to a liquor store where you're seeing all the brands next to each other. But I think, you know, particularly amongst some brands that really want to stand out, they don't want the consumer to be reminded of uh, who their competitors are. So this service really lets the consumer go to, you know, that website of the, of the brand they already know they want to buy and just have that sort of seamless experience and really mimic what, what d to c does in, in other industries.
2: So, Tim, certainly one of the questions is what happens on the other side of the pandemic? I mean, I feel like that's the case for a lot of companies and trends that have happened during the health crisis and the shutdown. It's curious if we're all going to continue, you know, ordering booze online. I don't know. Time will tell.
3: Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll be at bars and, and we'll be ordering <laughs> Ubers, uh, you know, the company that owns that will own Drizzly soon. <laughs> to get home, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. That's interesting, a way of tying it all together. All right, that's Bloomberg News consumer reporter Tiffany Carey. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week: innovation in how we buy our booze. We just covered that. Up next, though, innovation in food. It's just getting started. We checked in with the president of Impossible Foods.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg
0: Businessweek. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
2: So this week, Impossible Foods cut its suggested retail prices by 20% at U.S. grocery stores, Tim. And the move definitely seen as key by the company's president. It's all about getting people to try the brand, Tim, and keep on coming back.
3: Well, we wanted to know more. So we caught up with Impossible Foods president, Dennis Woodside. Dennis, by the way, former COO of Dropbox. He was also CEO of Motorola Mobility when Google owned it.
11: Look, you know, our mission is to completely replace uh, animals in, in your diet. And for us to do that, we have to produce a product that tastes great. We have that, but it has to be priced right. And people, consumers are very price sensitive when it comes to their meat and the meats that they purchase in grocery stores. We've scaled so quickly over the last year. We've gone from 200 grocery stores to over 17,000 that we've been able to get a lot of efficiencies in our supply chain and, and, uh, drive our costs down. So we, we passed those costs on to our consumers in the form of a 20% price decrease. We don't think this will be our last. We have to compete with animal, uh, animal products, so we're going to do that.
3: So, so when will it be as cheap as uh, ground beef?
11: Well, if you think about what we, what we do, we take plants and we turn them directly into meat. And what the animal does, it's, the animal's kind of an intermediary that, uh, that, that requires a lot more land, a lot of water, a lot of labor, a lot of transportation, oil, gas to move uh, cows around, that sort of thing. Uh, so in theory, our products should be much lower priced than uh, than cows over time, but it just takes time for us to optimize the supply chain to scale up. Uh, you know, animal-based uh, meat today is less than one percent of the total meat consumed in the U.S., uh, but that's going to change pretty rapidly. And as that does, the cost for the whole industry, including us, will come down, and we'll be able to compete much more aggressively on price.
3: But timeline-wise, though, is there? Are you thinking? You know, in years that you can count on one hand, or or is this like a decades long progression? Absolutely,
11: no, abso- absolutely, years that you can count on one hand. There are portions of our product now, or elements of our product now, that are are at the cost of the cow. But there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of processing costs and transportation costs, packaging, all those things that we have not yet fully optimized, and that take that just take time and scale to get right. So the packaging, what what the actual uh, product shows up in on shelf, that's expensive. Uh, but as you get bigger, the, those costs come down.
2: So that's what I was going to ask you. Is it just a case of when you're selling more, Dennis? The math just changes when you're selling more product. The costs go down. Is that what it comes down to, or is it a, is it a case of being able to squeeze even more costs out of the current systems?
11: It's a little of both. So what okay. we do, what we've been able to do over the last year is go back to our suppliers uh, and negotiate better prices because we're we're driving a big part of their growth. Uh, we've also been able to get better utilization out of our factory. so we're running three shifts a day instead of two. Uh, and you amortize that fixed cost of the factory over more products, and that allows you to take your take your price down over time. Hey, I'm curious. and we don't see that stopping. That's just going to continue.
2: I'm curious too, Dennis. Have you guys done some focus groups with customers who are just like, it's too expensive right now? It just, I can't do it. I want to do it, but I can't.
11: So people. So first of all, uh, over eighty percent of people who are. Uh, trying Impossible for the first time, they're coming. They're meat eaters, so yeah. so they are they are substituting Impossible for for all kinds of meat products, not just ground beef. But when, and when we when they try it, the number one thing that they say they love about the product is the taste. It tastes just like beef. It's got the same nutritional profile as beef. The one thing that they say that they they don't like as much is not just the price, and that is absolutely a barrier to to repeat and uh, repeat purchase and frequency of purchase. But if we can get the price right, you know, that's a pretty, pretty obvious lever to pull to, to grow our, our volume and, and continue to scale.
3: How do the habits of of how people are, are eating this type of product, how did they change or have they changed during the pandemic?
11: Well, you know, so a year ago, we weren't even available in retail. And when the pandemic hit, we realized that the retail, we were available in 200 stores. We realized that we needed to scale up really quickly. And uh, what we noticed was that consumers were were uh... flocking to plant-based products they they were cooking more at home and they were willing to try something different they had a little maybe a little bit more time to cook or they were cooking and, and in the past they were were would have been eating out uh... so they were open to trying uh, new products and that's why our sales have, have really taken off at retail and what we're also noticing obviously there's a lot more uh... delivery activity uh... consumers buying impossible on digital platforms whether it's direct delivery from grocery through instacart or they're buying uh... finished uh, entrees through DoorDash, so so we're seeing growth across all of those areas. The one area that's obviously been impacted uh, quite a bit are the smaller restaurants, which have which have really suffered.
2: Hey, talk to us too, Dennis, about collaborations. I'm curious what lasting traction you are finding from some of the collaborations and partnerships that you have been doing. We know. All the folks in kind of the alt-food space have been linking up with the likes of whether it's a Taco Bell, uh, a McDonald's, and you guys, I know, had uh, teamed up last year, no, in 2019, I think it was, with Burger King for Impossible Whopper. So I'm just curious how those are, are helping you in your mission.
11: Yeah, so we, we have, impossible uh, now available uh, pretty broadly in the U.S., mm-hmm. BK, uh, you, know, you mentioned Burger King, White Castle, Red Rob, and Kidova are just a handful we added Starbucks, a Starbucks breakfast sandwich, uh, in the middle of the pandemic in June right. of last year. And we've, and we've seen that, uh, product do incredibly well, exceeding both of our expectations. So, uh, you know, these, these partnerships are very important and every restaurant operator is realizing they need to have a plant-based meat option on the menu. Consumers are, are asking for, for, for choices and asking for alternatives. And so it's at the top of the top of agenda of every executive in the, uh, in the, in the uh, QSR space that I, that I talk to, for sure. Uh, and those who don't have a plant-based meat option now are absolutely considering one.
3: Dennis, what is the difference between Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods?
11: Yeah, the two things that consumers tell us is, is first of all, taste our product tastes just like meat. And survey after survey shows that the, the, the liking scores, the preference scores for our product versus animal-based meat are relatively even. So people have a hard time telling the two apart. The second thing that, that chefs tell us is it uh, the product handles just like ground beef. The color when it comes in raw, the way it transitions from a, a pink or a reddish uh, raw state to a cooked state, the way it sizzles, the way it smokes, all those things. And 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 that's uh, mostly due to the intellectual property we have around an, an ingredient called heme, which is found in every animal. But we've been able to uh, to to ferment it from plants and use that as the, the key ingredient that aids in the transition of, of the product and the color of the product.
3: Interesting. So, so it's meatier, like it's more like meat.
11: It's much meatier. It, 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 that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're, we are simply trying to replicate the animal in every sense. The nutritional profile over time better the animal. Uh, we need to beat the beat the cows. What we say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have to say that in our lunch offerings here at Bloomberg, like often comes up some alternatives. Yeah, I'm not t- quite we sure. had one today, right? And I'm not quite sure who whose they are. Um, so uh, so I can't speak to that. What I am curious, though, to Dennis, is you guys have been spending a lot on R and D, and you plan to double the size of your R and D team, from what I understand. What's the R&D focusing on? And does it include anything like 3D meat, which is something we've started to talk about here absolutely. at Bloomberg? Yeah.
11: Yeah. So so, so, what we're trying to do is replicate every animal protein that you consume. Uh, there's well over a trillion pounds of animal protein consumed every year. So this market is absolutely massive. It's one of the largest technology markets, if you call it a technology, uh, in the world. And there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation. Uh, we're eating kind of the same products our grandparents ate prepared kind of the same way with the same nutritional profile. So we're, we're one of the first companies that's focused at the molecular level on re-engineering, uh, meat all from plants. And so that's starting with ground beef because it's such a iconic product, uh, for most Americans, but focusing on pork. We have a pork product that we shared at CES last year. Uh, we, sausages, uh, we have, uh, lab prototypes uh, of basically every meat imaginable, including steak, uh, and we see a day when we'll be able to offer any protein on the menu in a plant-based form. It might take, a, it will take a while for us to get there, but that's what we're, why we're investing so heavily in R and D.
2: Are you going to go into also fish? And I know we've got somebody we've been uh, planning to get on the show that's got plant-based shrimp. So I'm just curious: is it just you can go anywhere and do, and will you? Yeah. We-
11: we, well well we believe that the the technology we have the the intellectual property around heem which is in every single type of meat in, yeah. in in the world as well as all we've learned in building the impossible burger gives us the opportunity to compete in all those spaces you know for now it's our primary product is ground beef but that's going to
3: change very rapidly what's the what's the exit plan here for for investors um, Tim and I were
2: both thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: I mean, look—you're, you, you know, beyond me. The, the I would, I would argue the, the chief rival um, is a publicly traded company. Um, you've raised a lot of money from a lot of significant investors. Uh, what's the IPO plan?
11: Yeah, well, uh, Pat Brown, our, our founder and, and CEO, he has said that uh, eventually, you know, that we will, we will need to go public. We will want access to the public market financings. We'll want ac- access to credit markets as well. Uh, but we'll do that on our own timeline. We're well-funded, as you mentioned. We've got plenty of cash in the bank. We have a number of big investments that we're going to be making over the next year in capacity, so in, in manufacturing facilities, uh, and uh, and in new products that we'll be launching. Um, at some point in time, it'll be the right time to make that kind of public decision. But But for now, we're... We're, uh, we're, we're pressing ahead as a private company and continuing to scale our scale the business.
3: That's Dennis Woodside, the president of Impossible Foods.
2: And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser.
3: And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune in to our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
2: You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News.
3: And check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: That's where you can find... The full conversations of a lot of our guests this week and so much more.
3: And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com/QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more.
2: Bloomberg Business Week, available on Newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone.
3: This is Bloomberg.